Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Welcome to The Python Show with uh, your host, Mike Driscoll. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, Christopher Trudeau from RealPython. He does a lot of uh, training around Python and I believe Django, and he just writes a ton for RealPython and does lots of other cool things. Anyway, welcome to the show, Christopher. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, super awesome to have you. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe you can give us some background into your journey to programming? Sure. Um, well, let, let's let's start with the history bit first. Uh, that sort of sure. start that journey side. Uh, I started coding relatively young. I was nine or ten. I'm in cool. my fifties now. So, uh, so I was part of that first generation that uh, had a home PC. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad worked for IBM, so our first computer was a IBM PC Junior. Uh, the processing. Nice. Processing speed was in megahertz. The RAM was in <laughs> kilobytes, uh, five mm -hmm. and a quarter inch floppy, uh, booted into basic. Uh, so yeah, uh, rudimentary by today's standards. I think a USB cord has more processing power than that now. Uh, but <laughs> probably uh, my friends all had like VIC twenties and Commodore four, Commodore sixty fours, so uh, we couldn't share games. Uh, but mm -hmm. the machine came with a learn basic programming book, and so I essentially. When I started, I had one game, King's Quest, and this book. So, mm -hmm. all right. So I picked up programming. Um, I, a lot of like mm -hmm. the typing in from magazines kind of thing. I remember doing a donkey on the road game. You hit the space bar and the donkey moves back and forth and you try not to get hit by oncoming traffic. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, first program I remember writing, you know, for myself that wasn't just typing something in. Uh, was really just a listing of graphic primitives that made the Batman symbol. Um, I was mm -hmm. uh, very proud. Yes. For, first, I'm not really artistic, so just sort of tackling the proportions and making something that looked like I wanted was, you know, a new experience for me. Uh, mm -hmm. And second, the whole idea of negative space and like using black circles to make cuts in the yellow oval to get that famous logo. Mm -hmm. Right, that this was a this was a thing. It kind of opened my eye to it. So. Yeah. Uh, coding was always sort of a hobby, um, and it wasn't really till late in high school that I really had a teacher sort of point out, hey, you know, you could do this for a living. Um, and I ended up in a computer engineering program, uh, eventually did grad school, and uh, to help fund my grad work, I did some teaching, uh, which I really mm -hmm. enjoyed. Um, my mom's a retired teacher, so I think some of that's sort of in the blood. Um, and that mm -hmm. kind of... Um, <laughs> skipping a whole bunch of other career that kind of brought me back to where I am now, where I'm doing, you know, some, <laughs> uh, some classwork, some teaching, some consulting, and I, it all sort of ties to some of that together. Awesome. That's quite the, quite the background going from nine years to teaching. Did you teach programming when you were in college too, or was it teaching something else? Uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, they were essentially, t uh, teaching assistant jobs. So it was the same, mm -hmm. essentially it was the same courses I'd just finished taking a year or two later. And I was helping, you know, do mm -hmm. tutorials and uh, labs and some marking and all that kind of good stuff. So, uh, the fun bit I always found was being at the front of the classroom and interacting with the students, uh, the, mm -hmm. the not so fun bit is getting yelled at by the guy you just gave an 85 because he thought he deserved a 90. But, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit of TA work for a C++ class and it was mostly enjoyable. 
Yeah, it's uh, I, it's you know I, I I like I like interacting with the folks and I like trying to you know uh, th- watching that spark go on as people get it and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's an, an mostly an enjoyable thing. It uh, you, you're never going to get rich at it, but uh, it's uh, it's a good no. enough living. It's a good enough living. Yeah, I think I think teaching people, I don't know, I, it's very rewarding. It may not be financially rewarding, but it's it makes you feel good inside and. You're helping the next generation usually, not always. Yeah, for fun. sure. And, and you know, and over the years, you know, you you end up you bump into students, and they, oh, this helped me, and I see you know this helped help me see things differently and work differently. Um, it wasn't really a teaching gig, but a couple couple of years back, I was doing a, the like technically it was a consulting gig, but it was really more of a favor. It was a friend mm. of mine's university son, and he was uh, he was writing some random code for his startup and Mm -hmm. uh my friend basically said you know can you can you just spend a little time with him and i was like okay sure so we sat down and we did stuff that he wasn't doing in class like you know unit tests and uh hooking things up through github actions and just getting some of that stuff working better and my friend came to me like a month later he's like i don't know what you did but it's been fantastic and it's like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what i did either but it's nice to hear so it's always good yeah, I I don't do much teaching myself, but it's fun to meet people who've re- who've read articles that you've written or books that you've written, and they'll yes, yeah. get very similar feedback. It's nice to make a difference. Yes. So I, I ask a lot of people, you know, what are your favorite Python packages or modules? I'm sure you have a few favorites, if you mind just sharing them. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, my career's been a lot of sort of startups and small companies. Uh, so on the work mm-hmm. side, uh, I do a lot of web and web backends for mobile apps. So my standard stack is, as you kind of hinted at earlier, it's Django. Mm-hmm. Um, for doing APIs, I was using the Django REST framework for a while until Ninja came along, which is much, much easier to work with. So that's now sort of my go-to for mm-hmm. the API side. Um, not that it's Python, but uh, I usually used Vue.js for you know the front-end stuff. And cool. that really was driven by Django because... Uh, if you want to use React or Angular, then it's it, it, you have to use all of React and Angular, and then Django's just doing the back end, whereas Vue, mm-hmm. it lets you to sort of do a bit of Web 1.0 for the pages that can be Web 1.0, and then Vue for the dynamics, so it mixes mm-hmm. uh, well. Um, and then nice. the last, I guess, uh, half a year to a year, I've been playing with HTMX a lot. Uh, really like that. It makes a big difference for uh, web applications. Um, and that's uh, so the Django HTMX library by Adam Johnson makes that much easier. Mm-hmm. Drastically reduces the amount of JavaScript I have to write, which is something that I enjoy. Writing less than JavaScript makes me happy. Yeah. Uh, and then outside of the web world, uh, for my screencasts, I have a TUI tool uh, that I use to make it look like I'm typing when I'm talking. <laughs> and uh, it was originally built on Erwid, uh, but that's, although effective, it's kind of stale. It isn't being maintained. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the process of converting it over to a library called Ascii-Matics, which is by okay. Peter Bertain. Uh, it's got some good form processing stuff at it in it, and it's got uh, some real good sort of text management. Like you can stick in escape sequences and things like that for colorization. So it works really well mm-hmm. for for integrating with things like pigments and that kind of stuff to get the text pieces going. So, cool. so yeah, so that's that's kind of the usual stuff for me. Well, I think I think one of my 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 book editor, who's kind of a volunteer, he he really liked Askematics too. I 
I should check that out. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I went through when I was looking it out, I was looking at it and, um, uh, Will's, uh, textual, uh, mm-hmm. and, Textual feels a little more business application-y. Uh, Aschematics has some of that sort of 1980s demo feel of like moving sprites mm-hmm. around the screen and things like that. So if you're doing stuff like I am where there's a lot, a little more animation in it, a little more presentation, Aschematics was sort of uh, a better fit. Um, <laughs> so not that Textual is a bad library. It's got, there's a lot of good stuff, interesting stuff going on with that uh, right now. But uh, yeah, Aschematics was what I sort of decided uh, to go down to, to do my rewrite. And it's not quite there yet. It's one of those, it's a back mm-hmm. burner project. I've been doing it for about a year. I haven't got to my, to the point O release yet. So, but yeah, it'll yeah. get there. Yeah. I've been, I've been learning a little bit of textual lately and I'm like, I, I really like it. I, I'm not a huge async person, but it, it's not, not hard to get into, uh, using that framework. Yeah. I, I I'm, I have I have a love hate relationship with CSS. So when somebody says and this use CSS and it'll make your life easy, it makes mm-hmm. me suspicious. Uh, simply because CSS has never made my life easier. So uh, I haven't played it with textual yet. So I don't know how how well it works that way. But uh, that was one of the one of the things that pushed me a little away from it. it was like, oh God, I don't want to look at any more CSS. Thank you. Yeah, no. the CSS part made me nervous too because I've never had much luck with CSS and. That's also why I don't play with Kiwi that much because they the Kiwi language is very much CSS like. Yeah. So. But I will say that uh, Textual did do a really good job of creating an uh, what they call the developer mode, which lets you do live CSS editing and see how it affects their UI. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah. And I I found that really helpful in learning you know how the CSS worked. Yeah, and, and and quite frankly, one of my big complaints about CSS is it seems to be slightly subtly different in different browsers. So if you're building it to mm. one application, it really doesn't matter. It becomes less of a what is it doing and why is it doing that. It's it, mm. it, it, you know if you're only building it for one thing, so so m- most of my complaints about it probably would uh, wouldn't be valid if it was, it's being used in a different space like this. But uh, like I said, it was one of the one of the things that pushed me away from it. Well, I mean, I've been playing with Textual with uh, Windows Terminal and Windows Command.exe, and they look wildly different because, you know, Command.exe is from the 80s, basically. Yep. And (laughs) Terminal is more like uh, PowerShell on steroids. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I've run into similar things with, uh, I'm on a Mac, and the (laughs) built-in Terminal claims it's got better color handling than it does. And so you can mm-hmm. run into some little weirdnesses with terminal programs. Um, iTerm is, uh, or iTerm yeah. 2 or whatever it is, is like the common one on the Mac that everybody uses. And I've never had any problems with it. So I just stick with that. Um, and because, mm-hmm. you know, the advantage of writing tools for yourself is you don't have to worry about anybody else. So for this, <laughs> for this kind of thing, it's like, oh, it works on my machine. And if it, if it works for you, it's open source, go knock yourself out. But uh, I'm not testing mm-hmm. it anywhere but on my box because I'm I'm my primary audience in this case. Yep, yep. I totally agree. Most of my code is, you know, try at your own risk. I hope it works for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So I see that you've uh, do some uh, training. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of training content you do with Python? Yeah, sure. So I, I kind of mentioned the whole grad school thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was a bit of a passion there. And then for the last, uh, I think I'm up 
14 or 15 years now, I've been technical consulting. So I founded okay. an agency with a partner, a company is called Arsenza. It's Latin for art of thought. And uh, we specialize in what the marketing people call fractional CTO and fractional COO, which basically means we do CTO and COO like things for companies that are too small to pay that for a full-time person. Okay. So I do a lot of architecture and technical process type stuff. And you can't do technical process type stuff nowadays without being neck deep in agile. So a lot of the mm. consulting I've been doing has been in the agile space. Uh, and when you're doing transformations with teams, you naturally end up having to do training as well because people have to learn mm -hmm. the vocab and how the scrum meetings work and all that kind of stuff. So this sort of resurfaced that teaching bug for me. Um, and I landed a contract with a bank and ended up teaching over 2000 students how to do scrum 101. Mm -hmm. This led to relationships with professional training companies um, and we kind of expanded the business to include creating and running courses. Um, and so because cool. of my background, I was doing soft technical skills like Agile and Lean and then hard technical skills like Java, Python, and Selenium. So okay. while doing all this, I saw a call for screencasters on a site I followed on Twitter called Real Python. I think you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I sent in a little demo tutorial and was accepted. And so now I've been doing that sort of on the side for almost four years now. I've mm -hmm. written about a half dozen articles and I'm currently working on my 44th video course, which is, I, it's wow. just amazing that I, that it's gone that far, but, uh, you know, you do one a month and, uh, over time it, uh, over years it gets there. Uh, yeah. you, you do a bunch for them. How did you end up on uh, real Python? Well, you know, I've been I, I'd written a couple of books before Rio Python started putting out, hey, we we need writers or or video people, and um, at that time I was like, you know, my, is my writing good enough? You know, you always have that fear that you're not you could you could be better or that people aren't don't like your book because you you know you're not professional enough. It's that that imposter syndrome creeping into the back of your mind, and so I decided. Um, I'm going to submit some work to Real Python, and if they accept me, um, maybe I can learn something from them. Right. And I can contribute too. And of course, they accepted me because I have a lot of, I had quite the backlog on my on my website that showed I could write, at least halfway decent. And <laughs> and I really liked I really liked Real Python for their uh, editor editorial work. I I worked with Joanna when she was there. And yep. So did I. Yeah. Yeah, she was super cool, and I really enjoyed working with her. And she taught me a ton about Active Voice and yes. <laughs> how, you're, how you're supposed to write and for a technical audience. And, <laughs> and there's some good, there's a lot of good technical editors there too, yeah. or not uh, not technical editors, technical reviewers. That's the word. Anyway, I really like their process. It takes I, I think it takes too long. No ba no bash on them. It just takes a long time from beginning to end, and I'm. I'm a blogger, so I'm used to writing up my article and getting it done in an hour and maybe proofing it a little bit and then publishing. And, right. you know, real Python, it can take two, two or three months or longer sometimes to get uh, it, pushed through. Yeah, they end up with high quality results. Uh, they do. But, uh, yeah, it is, it's definitely a process. Uh, yeah, I'm, they, they do a really good job. I'm not, I'm not knocking them for that. I'm just saying I'm used to publishing when I want to publish, not when someone else wants to publish. 
Yeah, it's a different different mechanism. Yeah, you, yeah. you're talking about active voice. It's uh, it is my bane. I uh, I frequently <laughs> uh, I'll run the grammar checker and then it'll say, oh, this is passive, and I'll I'll change the sentence and I'll run the grammar checker again and it's like, and this is passive. I'm like, you mean mm-hmm. I edited my passive sentence and turned it into a passive sentence? I still haven't got this yet. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Anymore, I just copy my text into Grammarly, and I just go through it, and it uh, updates for me. Yeah. Basically. No, I, I I use Lang Tools uh, to to but same same principle. It yells at me, and I try to try to mm-hmm. make it better. But uh, it's a learning process. It's absolutely a learning process. Yeah, I really wish Grammarly had better plugins because it really only plugs into Word, and Microsoft Word uses the wrong. What is it? The Double quotes and quotes; those those are not the quotes that work right in in an IDE. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't remember what that's called now, but I've I've copied. I've I did it once. I when I worked on a book for Pact, I put my code into Word. Word jacked it up, and then I copied the code to try to run it for somebody. And I was like, oh, my code doesn't work anymore because Word made it puke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, LangTool is uh, is open source, which I like, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it is available. Although it talks to the server, you can download it and run it locally on the command line. Um, oh, cool. So I, essentially, I've just got a script that I pipe any of my uh, text files through, and it essentially says, oh, there's a problem on this line. Uh, it has mm-hmm. some basic understanding of, I think it's Markdown is the one that it understands. Um, but even if I'm writing an RST or whatever, you just end up at, Oh, a false positive is it starts complaining about the grammar in your code and you Mm -hmm. ignore that line and keep going. So does that thing work in like text editors or, uh, it's, I, I think it has plugins as well, but I don't, I don't generally use them. Uh, it's, it's a Java based mechanism and you can run it as a server, and then there's like a plugin to connect to it. I'm pretty sure I've used it with PyCharm. So I, there's some pluggable okay. mechanisms for it. Uh, generally, I just use it as a command line pipe. So I don't even run the server. I essentially just mm-hmm. say, hey, here's the command line. Pump, pump this uh, text file through it. And uh, But then I, I don't use... I'm, well, back to the being in my 50s. I'm old school. My editor's VI, so I'm very much on a terminal for all this stuff. I don't even use IDEs, so it, it kind of fits my tool set well that it's just pop open another text window and go from there. Yeah, I'm not quite down to terminals, but I, I use a text editor for most of my writing. So, uh, Oh, I was going to ask you, you mentioned you're doing, you, this is your 44th video course. How many videos are there in a course on average? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it all depends. So depending <laughs> on who you're building for, uh, mm-hmm. the answer's different. Um, so uh, Real Python breaks it down by lessons. Uh, okay. And a short course is five or six lessons. Um, okay. A long course, you get into like nine or ten. Um, uh, there, I try to keep it below that. And we are trying, uh, generally at real Python, we're trying to get them shorter as well. So that, uh, so you end up with a few more, mm-hmm. um, but that's very a site specific thing. So like the flip side of it is I've done a couple courses for talk Python. Um, mm-hmm. my Django course for them is six hours long. Um, okay. and, uh, the, the, 
Mike Mike Kennedy breaks it down more by lessons and then automatically sort of bookmarks it. So he doesn't care mm. if they're short. So you could end up with a chapter that's like 45 minutes. But because every three minutes he puts in a little bookmark, if you don't want to go through the whole thing, you can just sort of go back midway through mm. and start from a little semi-title. Um, yeah. So a lot, a lot of it ends up depending on who I'm developing for. Uh, there's subtlety, subtle differences mm. uh, to how they, how they like the problem approached. Uh, I don't know if you can reveal this information or not, but uh, do you find that students like the longer six-hour courses better than like the short courses or vice versa? It's uh, honestly, it's very hard for me to know as a content creator. I'm not connected directly to that kind of stuff. Um, You see the occasional comment on a course and I've seen, hey, this was really in-depth and you taught me a lot. That's great. I love it. And then occasionally I see, oh, you know, this was short. You should do more short ones. So Mm. I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to separate the signal from the noise. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I've done a little bit of chorus stuff, but I've never gotten any feedback about, is it too long, too short, too detailed, too bland? Yeah. Well, and, mm. and, uh, you know, depending as a content creator where, because I don't host my own stuff because I develop for other people, mm-hmm. there's that extra, how you get paid thing as well. Right. So some yeah. companies will pay you by the hour. Some companies pay you, uh, based on hits, uh, mm-hmm. So if you're getting paid on hits, then you want might want shorter courses because I, you know, in the same amount of time, I can spit out three courses instead of one longer one. And that, you know, mm-hmm. helps the pocketbook. Right. So yeah, a little bit of strategy involved in some of that. But uh, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's get back on track. So you do a lot of Django work. Uh, how did you end up choosing Django versus the, the you know the whole ecosphere of the Python web frameworks? Uh, it, the choice wasn't quite as complicated when I started out, so that's part okay. of the reason. Um, I was at a startup. It was 2010, 2011, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the VP of development, which when you're at a startup and there's only three of you is sort of an aspirational title rather than a fact. <laughs> uh, but uh, part of my job was to figure out what our tech stack would be. And I had been mm-hmm. doing a bit of Python. I think I'd had a couple years of Python under my belt at that point in time. So I figured I'd stick with it. I enjoyed it. Um, and uh, Django was in like the 1.0 or 1.1 days, I think. I do mm-hmm. remember doing the upgrade to 1.2 when I was there. Um, but my main reason for it then is really my same, my main reason now, which is Django has more of the pieces that I need. So I like flask. Um, I use it. It's a good toolkit. I tend to use it for quick stuff or for proof of concept kind of things, Mm -hmm. but to do a full site, you need templating. So you've got flask plus Jinja and then you need a database. So you've got flask plus Jinja plus SQL alchemy. Mm-hmm. And what have you done? Well, you've just recreated Django, uh, except that the pieces aren't yeah. as closely integrated, right? So um, none of that speaks badly for any of those libraries. They're great. Uh, I mm-hmm. just kind of like that one place to go to sort of approach. Um, you know, Christopher Bailey and I were talking about the recent breaking change mess that has happened in the Flask community on the the last uh, Real Python po- uh, podcast and. You know, the Flask login being a separate library means there's a delay. So when Flask makes a change, you have to wait for Flask login to catch up. Um, And Mm -hmm. most of those kinds of utility libraries are built into Django. So you have less of this kind of problem. Um, It's not to say Django's perfect. Um, If you want to do a lot of asynchronous stuff, they're behind everybody else without a doubt. 
Um, mm-hmm. They've been making great progress lately, but they're definitely still behind. Uh, but most of the clients I do work with, uh, it's business application type projects and async just isn't important. You scale by throwing more servers at the problem. So yeah. asynchronous isn't really a limitation. You know, it's not a stumbling block for the kinds of work I've been doing with. So Django kind of is a fit for me in the kinds of projects I work on. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I was trying to remember because I'm pretty sure Pylons was out then. I don't remember if they actually did any kind of templating back then or not. Yeah, I, I remember looking at Zope at the time. Um, yeah, Zope and it and was it was very, very complex. And uh, mm-hmm. it was... Uh, it, Django, although it's opinionated, uh, particularly if you're using things like function-based views, it really is just sort of, <laughs> I'm going to write a function and it's going to spit out that page. And I link it to mm-hmm. a URL. And it just it gelled to me uh, as to how you should approach the problem. Um, I always found with things like Zope that it was, you know, four layers between four layers of abstraction. Yeah. I, it, it just was too much to bite off for me at the time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it, it's. I agree. <laughs> it's one of those things, right? You get 10 programmers in a room and you're going to find at least 11 opinions. So, uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's just what was there when you were in a certain space and what mm-hmm. made sense for you at the time, right? Yeah. When, when I, in my first job, we had a Plone Zoop instance for the main website, but we wrote our web apps in Turbo Gears and sometimes Cherry Pie. So it's interesting to hear how other people started out. Yeah. I, I don't know Turbo Gears. What was that? It still exists. Um, I think it, it was related in some way to Pylons at one time. Okay. But I think it was an offshoot of it. Right. And... Um, I don't remember exactly what made them different, but they, it was like right after they, I, I learned it like right after they had launched and they're going into 2.0 and I feel like they did some kind of breaking change and I thought they had died out, but they st- they're still releasing or at least they released a couple of years ago. Wow. Okay. So I guess they're, they're still around, but I don't know. I find it funny. It's um, so I, one of the things I do for real Python is I, I curate the PyCoders newsletter mm-hmm. and uh, we try to include uh, links to four or five projects in every newsletter. So I'm always looking through GitHub for new things, stuff that people have released or the things we haven't highlighted before. Mm-hmm. And I'd say once every month or two, someone has posted a, Hey, this is a new simple Python web framework. And <laughs> Seems to be like a go-to project, and uh, yeah. I, there's a lot of simple stuff out there. But uh, the you know a fully operational, all singing, all dancing, does all the things is a deep, deep project, right? There's a there's a lot mm-hmm. of moving pieces there. Uh, just spitting out a web page, yeah, that's that's the easier part. Uh, you know, getting all the other parts working together can be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I think the the one I've heard recently was Robin, and it's only a couple years old, but it feels like it's gotten a lot. A lot farther along than a lot of the other Johnny Come Latelys. Mm. Um, let's see. So, I heard you've got a book coming out. Would you mind telling me about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's you know from one Django topic to another. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's called Django in Action. 
Um, okay. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what verb tense to put on it. So it's in pre-release right now. So that means mm-hmm. you can buy it. Uh, and if you do, you get the electronic version immediately. And then there's an option to get the dead tree thing when it finally gets out there. Okay. Um, I, I've actually really liked this about the process. It's given me feedback. Uh, I've been able okay. to make improvements, uh, see what the re- readers are struggling with. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it slows you down a little bit. Uh, like you said, you're mm-hmm. not just slapping that blog post out there, but, uh, hopefully it's, uh, heading me towards a better, uh, better, better, uh, product uh, when I finally get done. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, as to the subject, it was sort of a happy accident. Um, writing a book has kind of sort of always been on my bucket list. Um, at mm-hmm. about near the end of last year, I was planning to sit down and write something, and it was going to likely be in the agile space because that was going to act as an add-on for my consulting stuff. Mm-hmm. And around the same time I was thinking about this, Manning Publications reached out, and they'd seen some of, I think, the real Python stuff, possibly the Talk Python stuff. I can't remember the exact timing on it. Uh, okay. And they said, hey, we're looking for somebody to write Django and you seem to know Django. And I went, okay. Um, and <laughs> I I'd more or less just finished building the Talk Python course. Like I said, it was you know, six hours of, uh, mm-hmm. of video stuff there. So I'd spent a fair amount of time thinking about, you know, the order to teach things in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was sort of a natural fit. So, yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's three parts or it will be three parts. Um, mm-hmm. Two of uh, two of them are done, um, and I'm currently working on the third. The The first section is sort of the base concepts, uh, how to build a project, writing templates, using the database ORM, Django admin, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. And the intent is when you get to the end of the first part, you'll have enough to build a Django site. Uh, cool. And then the second part builds on top of that, adding the extras that come with Django, like form processing, user management, unit tests, management commands, mm-hmm. all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and the third part, which is what I'm working on right now, is how to build other kinds of sites, particularly with things like third-party tools. So um, okay. the chapter I'm procrastinating about at the moment is Django Ninja. Uh, and so how to build APIs for your site, either as an access point or you know to use it with React or something like that. And then I'm hoping to do a chapter on HTMX. And then probably a couple of whirlwind type chapters pointing out like cool libraries, other places to, you know, where to go next kind of thing to, uh, mm-hmm. to sort of go from there. Uh, eight of the chapters are out at the moment. So if you pick it up right now, you get up to chapter eight. Uh, Ten of them are in the hopper. I'm right in 11. And we're hoping to print to actual paper so that it comes out in the spring. Okay. Uh, how are you finding the writing process versus like creating a video, like a book? Um, it's it's similar and different. Uh, going through the course creation process and my thinking about the chapter is very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go and I write some code. I make some notes as in, oh, I, I did this, then I did this. And, oh, I want to teach this other thing, so then I'll do that. Um, mm-hmm. And then then I go and turn that, in the case of courses, I turn that into slides uh, in the case of the book, you sort of sit down and start trying to pound out paragraphs. Um, yeah, I've, uh, there have been a couple things that I have sort of stolen from things I learned in the courses. Um, because mm-hmm. it's a Django book, it's all around one single project. So as you go through each chapter, you're adding new features to the same thing. So it isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't toy problems. Um, and, 
the I've been getting good response from that from the readers because if you're writing reading a Django book, you want to learn how to build a site. So getting the mm-hmm. idea of how to do that it, that it's gone over well. Uh, the challenge with it is um, I have broken down in the sample code. You can see how it progresses. So I've currently got. 39 directories with 39 different versions of the Mm. sample code. Uh, And of course, if you find a bug, that's problematic (laughs) because you end up having to change it in a bunch of places. So I wrote, I ran into this when I was building a course on a Pi game for real Python. And we were doing the same thing, this sort of stepwise license. And I I remember finding a, a bug just as we were about to go live and I had mm-hmm. to go fix it in like eight different places. So knowing I was going to do this this way, I built a little tool. And now it's it's a parser that parses comments. So hmm. I build the actual application and then I put line comments in that say this code, this lives in chapter 10, section 3. And then I run the parser and it spits out all these directories. So learning this process from going through the course building made me go and build myself some tools to make it a little easier to do the book. Um, Mm. And in fact, I spent most of last week going through and building regression tests for all those, whatever I'm at, 39, 40 different directories. Mm. Uh, And I found several bugs and I fixed them. And it was a relatively simple process because I fixed it in the master and reran the parser and, and it went. So... Cool. So yeah, so there's, you know, you can always, you know, always apply one thing to the other some way or another. Yeah, I've been thinking that my, I think for my next book, I'm going to create um, some kind of testing infrastructure and maybe, maybe I'll use Get Actions to help me, help me apply those. Yeah, I, one of the things I ran into here is because Django uh, does a whole bunch of things when you import the module, uh, you can't just use a standard test harness because mm-hmm. it spawns it up for the first version of the project. And then when you try to do import the second version, it doesn't pick up the changes because it's created out of the first. Mm-hmm. So I ended up using multi-processing to solve the problem. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually only running one process at a time, but because the process spawns a new interpreter or the equivalent, uh, yeah. you, I basically was doing the Django import in the child process. So then once it's done running the test, I killed the child process fork again mm. and do it again. So essentially creating like these little mini environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's some intricacies to trying to do this and, and it's not a standard thing. You can't just Google this because no one else yeah. is going to do it this way, right? It's, it's not a normal way of approaching a coding problem. Yeah, that 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 makes me think of uh, some of the problems I've hit with teaching in uh, Jupyter Notebook because it holds it yes. holds weird things in memory that you yes. don't think about. Like uh, I was trying to teach logging with Jupyter Notebook, and that's not a good idea because the first time you import logging, it like stores off a reference to the, the default logger, and you can't change it. And you're done. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Unless it's you, all... re- yeah, you have to kill a kill a kernel. Singletons <laughs> get in your way. Yeah. Yeah. The curse of the singleton. <sighs> so let's see, what else I going to ask you? Oh, yeah, I, I really like the idea of, I, I think Manning does this, and I think O'Reilly does it, where they release the book kind of in pre-release. And I like I like doing that, too. I think that's a really good way to get feedback and improve the book early I, yeah, on. Actually, 
it, it's actually a, t- uh, they've also got a hidden process that goes on behind the scenes. So we've got the pre-release, mm-hmm. Manning calls it the MEEP, which is the Manning Early Access Program. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have an in deep review process as well. So they hmm. manage a set of readers, as some of them I think are other authors. Uh, and so I just went through the second phase of that. And so I had, I think it was 15 reviewers and they wow. have like a deep 20 questions and they're able to actually leave comments throughout the book. So if they hit a paragraph and they don't like something, they can say this didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's, uh, yeah, there's there's a very tight uh, feedback loop going on there in in behind. And then anyone who buys the book, uh, there's a public forum as well, and they can do the same thing. So if you buy it and read yep. it and something doesn't make sense to you or uh, you know, uh, what I've found out is that everybody's a copy editor. So although it says, mm-hmm. Hey, this book hasn't been copy edited yet. Don't bother, you know, highlighting spelling errors. Everyone loves telling me I have spelling errors. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so I get that kind of feedback yep. too. Um, uh, but, uh, everything that works to move it, but yeah, you can, you basically just log into the forum and say, Hey, this doesn't make sense. Or, you know, how do that goes? And I've been having a couple interesting conversations. A few people have reached out on LinkedIn and other places and, asking mm-hmm. questions about other things. Um, it's helped guide me writing chapters that I hadn't got to yet, right? So like as I was progressing, mm-hmm. somebody would say, well, how would I test this? And I'm like, oh, okay. And you end up having a conversation about that. And so when I got to the chapter on testing, it was like, okay, well, I got to ask the questions that they might have, uh, sorry, answer mm-hmm. the questions that they might have. And some of that came out of those kinds of conversations with readers. So nice. yeah, that, it's, uh, it, it's a very interactive uh, process. And it makes sense mm-hmm. from, you know, from their perspective, uh, purely from a financial mechanism as well, because if you can't get a decent, you, you got to start with a decent book, otherwise you're not going to get any sales, right? So yes. uh, uh, trying to get that edit cycle going uh, back um, up when it's cheap is, uh, mm-hmm. is is a good thing. Yeah, that whole, I think it's, I think it's one of those a- agile maxims, you, you want to fail fast. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, do you have any advice for people who might want to become a writer and write books or write blogs? I, you know, I don't know. And I'm almost worried that I'm mansplaining because like I, I'm still working on my <laughs> first one and uh, you've got what, nine or 10 under your belt? Uh, yeah, but you've written all kinds of stuff for real Python. I so I guess I, I don't, it's, um, I guess the old cliche is just that, uh, you know, you have to write to learn to write. Um, That's true. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, it's one of the authors who's been helping me a bit, uh, kind of jokes out jokes with me that he's like, yeah, one of these days, uh, he, he's going to do so well that he'll be a hundred air, right. Uh, uh, <laughs> writing kind of comes from either an ego place as in like, I want to do this or a teaching mm-hmm. place as in, I want to share my knowledge, which let's be honest is really a little bit of an ego thing as well. Right. Um, but yeah. uh, none of us are going to be Stephen King rich from writing some Python stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, but the flip side of it is the cost of it is so much lower now with things like self-publishing. And that's something I, I, you, mm-hmm. you self-publish some of yours, right? Yes, mostly I do. Yeah. And uh, so you're, you're better able to talk about that stuff than I am, but uh, I, it's the entry, the barrier to entry is uh, a lot lower than it would have been say 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So you really just start writing and see what works. Um, 
I have a bit of a process. I don't know whether it works for everybody or not, but uh, I am a fan of having a chapter plan. Mm-hmm. Um, Manning insists on having them, but I used them before writing for Manning. Uh, mm-hmm. it essentially just sort of gives you an idea of what do I want to cover in this chapter. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, maybe I'll flip it around. So I'm two thirds of the way through. Uh, motivate me for my last third. What, what, uh, <laughs> what should I know? How about, or maybe even just on getting the word out. How, how does that, uh, if you're self-publishing, you must be trying to master the marketing aspect. Yeah, I'm still, I, I'm always looking for new ideas for marketing, but, um, yeah, for, for me, my workflow is basically outlining the chapters, like you said, which is, I'm assuming what the chapter workflow is. You just outline them. And for me, what I normally do when I'm outlining them is I will, what that means is I outline the headings and the bullet points and the bullet points are the head, uh, like the subheadings. And then I write the code for the chapter and any kind of media that I'm going to insert. So, you know, pictures, figures, whatever. And a lot of people think that's backwards. They're like, you should write the chapter first. And I'm like, that never worked for me. Because if I try to write and then I try to put a code sample in, I, I write the wrong thing first and then I have to try to rearrange it around the code example. And I find that doing all the up, doing the outline and then the code and the images, then the, then the chapter pretty much writes itself at that point for me. Yeah, you know? no, I, and I'm the same. And, and it's the same with the courses. Like I, I always start with the code because the code is what I'm trying to teach. And then exactly. the teaching comes out of that. Um, uh, different publishers have different styles. Uh, Manning mm-hmm. is very insistent that uh, you have to start with explaining the code before you even show it. So they use the mechanism of if you have a diagram, diagram first, then mm-hmm. the textual description and then the actual code so that you more or less know what the code's doing before you're reading the code. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen other books that flip it the other way, which is read the code and then I'll explain it sort of a stepwise mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I can't imagine trying to approach it the way Manning wants it approached without having the code first, because then you, oh, yeah. w- what do you write? Right. Like it, it's, yeah. uh, it really is about sort of putting those pieces together. Uh, back to the advertising question. Um, I think you're doing I think you're doing what I would do is getting those beta readers, getting the word out with uh, the early access program. That's kind of what I do when I release my books early, except it's on Gumroad or LeanPub. And I announce it on my blog. Um, if you have a, if you have any kind of social media following, that's what I try to use, um, just to get get interest in the book. Or yeah, it makes. Course. I, I have noticed the difference. Uh, uh, I do have access to a day by day how many titles were sold, and like I can go back through and go, oh. That mm-hmm. was the day I was on Talk Python because I can see the spike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So there's there's definitely correlation there. Um, I always find that I don't know maybe it's just my inert Canadianism that uh, I don't want to <laughs> sp- speak too loudly about myself, but uh, mm-hmm. I find there's you know a balancing act, right? Like I don't want to be tweeting about it every single day because that would be exhausting. Oh, yeah. Um, but the flip side of it, when I, you know, when I announce there's a new chapter going out, it sells books, which you is, is almost counterintuitive, right? Because the new mm-hmm. chapter is about, uh, for the folks who've bought it already, Hey, just go click the update button. Um, but re- speaking about it being a new chapter, it seems to always drive sales. So there, I got to find that balancing act about, uh, when to talk about myself and, and how to launch it. Yeah. I think that's a good insightful 
insightful thing because if you know that you're going to get some a couple of sales, I just I'd be like, well, I have this. I, I know I'm going to be releasing a book this or a chapter this week. I would schedule a couple of tweets at different times of the day because your followers are around the world. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, I didn't think about and, that. Yeah, and when you first tweet, you know, you hit you hit I don't know. Let, let's say I, I hit Central 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 um, Central t- Standard Time because I'm in Iowa. But I have a lot of people who read my website in Germany or who follow me from Germany or, or Africa. They don't, they don't see that tweet because they're not up yet. Right. And so I'll, I'll sometimes schedule a retreat, a retreat for later or I'll just set it up to tweet again, like on another day, but much later in the day. Right, right. Because those tweets are only good, in my opinion, for like four hours, maybe eight, unless uh, they've okay. gone viral. Right. Yeah, I, part of my issue is I don't use Twitter the way most people use Twitter, so I, I don't experience it the way my audience does. Uh, yeah. I, I don't use the feed at all. Um, mm-hmm. I use the list feature, and I, so I see everything that comes through somebody. So you know, when you're scheduling two of those, I see both of them, um, mm-hmm. which it's no big yep. deal. But that's you know, big because I'm not using the feed, I don't see it that way. So I, I that's actually good advice. I should stop that and think about it the other way, which is because it's not how most people use the tool. I don't know if that if that applies to LinkedIn though. I don't know how LinkedIn works. I haven't figured out that algorithm yet. I neither have I. Uh, it's uh, and it's the same piece. It's um, Manning does cross postings to them, and I have seen some bumps occasionally when they announce mm. something. Um, there are a couple groups that you can cross post in, uh, quite yeah. frankly, half the time I post, it prompts me and says, do you want to cross post this? And half the time it doesn't. So I haven't even figured out the interface, let alone mm. or not, it's making any difference from a sales point of view. Yeah. I know some people have used some of the, the like, like YouTube and TikTok, and I, I don't really see any sales from either of those. I don't, I don't use TikTok at all, but. I don't get anything from YouTube. So I don't know if that's just the audience isn't big enough yet or because it's video and that's what they want. They want to consume video. They don't want books. So they don't care about books. I don't know. Yeah. I also wonder with some of that stuff too is, uh, is a noise issue as well, right? Like on the higher traffic Mm. sites, I know it's one of the things that, you know, uh, as soon as you're talking Python, that's a small fraction of the world's population. Then you start talking Django, Mm -hmm. which is a small fraction of the Python population that like the finding the right audience and getting into that right place, I think makes a, makes a bit of a difference. Yeah. You have to kind of look, I I hate, I don't like recommending Reddit because the, the, the Python community there is not great, but they might have a Django subreddit that is great. I don't know. Uh, Okay. I'll take a look. That might be worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, not spending a lot of time on social media myself, it's uh, it's a bit of a foreign concept to me. So, yeah, yeah, totally get it. <laughs> All right, so I think I reached the end of my question. So I just want to thank you so much for being on my show today. Ah, pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was awesome. I hope you'll you'll join me again in some future episode. Love to do. Awesome, and for everyone who's listening, definitely check out Chris's book or Real Python and read some of his great content. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. 